Matter isn't dead dust. I don't know what it is. I have no idea what it is. Matter is what matters. There's a definition. That's a very weird definition. Yes, folks. Here to talk to you about what matters. How's it going, brother? Uh, it's going pretty well. Uh, I'm excited. We had a good uh, talk with Lillian that we're going to share with people uh, today. Uh, I was a, a really s- smart uh, conversations. Uh, and, uh, you know, I started a little off with Jordan Peterson. We'll also talk about Jordan Peterson in the post game uh, with Lillian to talk about did he supposedly end feminism uh, <laughs> with a post? Um, you know, we'll we'll ask Lillian. Um, Jordan Peterson, though, a guy who was a, a college professor, you can find his like rate my professor stuff, where the uh, pro reviews, the pro reviews that really like him, talk about how they changed their li- his their, their students' lives. The critical ones, like he's a good presenter, but. A lot of the stuff he says is dubious. In fact, <laughs> your mind. I mean, even there. to himself. I mean, he catches himself in that opening clip um, where when he says, "Like what matters is matter." That's a weird definition, <laughs> you know? <laughs> exactly. Um, and I would I'd recommend uh, some more news that a three hour video on Jordan Peterson um, uh, on all that stuff. But nonetheless, Jordan Peterson, a guy, a very much. Uh, birthed by our university system uh similar in canada i mean he wasn't in the united states but uh nonetheless uh was allowed to like practice his sort of jungian insights uh uh, theories about lobsters and what rats are like in frozen uh he was able to do that for tuition money Mm -hmm. (laughs) and you know what i think we should have an expansive enough higher education system where people like him People like Brett Weinstein, <laughs> a lot of these like bad faith little creeps are able to, you know, what uh, Brett Weinstein can go into like how maybe genes are where we got World War II from into his seminar. You can do that stuff as long as the only uh, thing is you have to allow critical race theory, Marxism and feminism. And for <laughs> some people, that's too big of a of a sort of bridge to cross. And so we're instead just attacking all higher ed. Um, I want to talk today about uh, the student loan thing. So where we stand now is Joe Biden's going to announce he's finally his action on student loans. He'd always said in the uh, campaign that he'll do 10,000. He said for everybody. Mm-hmm. Remember that? Uh, and uh, and he will look into – he'll get his cleverest legal minds and economics wonks to like pour through the Constitution and the Declaration of Independence to find out what his authority is to maybe do up to 50,000, uh, which is what uh, Elizabeth Warren and Chuck Schumer are asking him to do. Uh, doesn't sound like we're going to get that. It's going to sound like that. That, that um, you know, installment of National Treasure um, student loan edition – is you know they came up empty there so it looks like it's going to be yeah ten thousand dollars if you make under uh hundred twenty five thousand dollars a year so it's going to be means tested as well 
I will just note, and uh, I'm forgetting who, uh, White of the Post, I believe, on Twitter, uh, tweeted out uh, this thing, which is like, why is it that middle class, when we're talking about uh, taxes and tax increases, stretches up to $400,000, mm-hmm. but it's only 125000 when we're talking about who gets student loan uh, forgiveness? Okay. Um, so it's going to be this, what is fundamentally kicking the can down the road. Uh, the student loan problem is way bigger than that. Uh, it's going to continue to get bigger than that uh, until we do something like uh, Bernie College's free public tuition for all and uh, a j- debt jubilee, a uh, massive widespread not means-tested one. Uh, we have a guy, though, that we should introduce people to. And lucky for you if you've never heard of this man before, but uh, I bet you you will for – the rest, you probably haven't been paying that close of attention to the Biden administration. Larry Summers. Who is Larry Summers? Larry Summers is uh, this fellow here. He is a Charles W. Elliott University professor and pre- pre- president emeritus at Har- president emeritus at Harvard, uh, secretary of the Treasury for President Clinton, and director of the National Economic Council for President Obama. So. Here, we don't like that kind of guy. <laughs> uh, I mean, you know, just to be like clear for folks, like this, like the fact that this guy is not coming from the right wing, um, but was a creature who was sort of unleashed by us by both Obama and uh, Bill Clinton tells you everything that you need to know um, about the history of neoliberalism in this country. Exactly right. And look, if you don't like Hillary Clinton, whether it's from the left or from the right, you should not be agreeing with what uh, this uh, vampire says. Uh, So let's continue here. Larry Summers, what does he say? I hope the administration uh, does not contribute to inflation macroeconomically. Is that... I, sorry, I, I I don't have an economics background. I feel like I'm being bullshitted already. Macroeconomically, mm-hmm. I I hope the administration does not contribute to inflation macroeconomically by offering unreasonably generous student loan relief, or microeconomically by encouraging college tuition increases. Every dollar spent on student loan relief is a dollar that could have gone to support those who didn't get the opportunity to go to college. Uh, he follows this up the following day. There is no analogy to bank bailouts. Student loans are grants that cost the government money. The bank bailouts were loans at premium interest in which the government turned a profit. Now, you can get in on this, uh, David. Oh, well, shoot. That's Larry Summers with Jeffrey Epps. I, didn't, I don't know how I got in on that. Oh, sorry, let me get to the next one. Oh, shoot. Let me get to the next one. Oh, no, you can't delete it? Damn it. Oh, that, I don't know how those got in there. I, that's really embarrassing for me. Um, Okay, damn. Yeah, two people very concerned okay. with opportunities for America's youth right there. <laughs> so uh, that was also Stephen Pinker's in the background there, um, another Harvard guy. Uh, uh, Warren Gunnels, Bernie Sanders' uh, uh, economic policy guy, uh, baloney Wall Street uh, banks got bags of cash 2008 by receiving trillions and uh, 0.5% interest rate loans from the Fed, purchasing T-bonds with a much higher rate of return and charging 25% interest on credit cards and other loans. Wall mm-hmm. Street didn't pay back shit. The American people did. That's a really like – I really like that point in terms of like we always hear about how Wall Street paid back. Oh, we paid back all of this money, right? Well, it's like how where were these profits coming from? Right. Well, you were getting all this low interest treatment. Where were these? Where where do banks get their profits from? I mean, David, you're the econ, econ guy. I mean, they're they're getting it. They're zombie companies. I mean, they're sitting there and they're just draining money out of the pockets of productive laborers. 
Um, and the way that they're able to do that is because they have access to capital up front, which the rest of us need. Like, you know, what you saw after the financial crisis was this huge expansion um, in, in the credit markets to normal everyday people. Um, you know, so that's something that you because unlike uh, like things like the PPP loans, you have to pay those back. Um, these companies basically because they have early access to capital that we don't have at rates that we don't get. Um, they utilize that to then build money off of all of us um, for years and years to come after. Yeah. And there's a, a weird little misstatement that he makes. I don't know why he calls these grants. Yeah. Uh, he says um, student loans are grants uh, w- that cost the government money. No, if they were grants, you don't pay back a grant. Yeah. They should be grants and we wouldn't be having this conversation. Uh, and we're going to get to why they aren't grants in a, in a second. But that's the, the a very strange thing. It, emeritus, that means retired. I mean, maybe he's losing a little bit of step. Should probably stop listening to people like this uh, would be my uh, uh, come, come away. Uh, also, uh, Larry Summers says scarce public resources should be put uh, to their highest and best use, regardless of how they are derived. Debt relief rather than a, a head start, adequate uh, funding of fundamental science, COVID care. This is a guy who worked for an administration. Let's bash Obama for a little bit. The fucking uh, housing crisis where we decided to just, like we talked, like Gunnels mentioned, give banks just trillions of dollars. You know who we could have just given that money to? We could have said, oh, guess what? Everybody who's worried about what they're going to do for their living situation because they're underwater, you own that house now. Mm. Imagine what, like, I mean, we didn't have a, we we had a, we had Obama who was an entire cabinet full of Citibank people. Like that was not going to happen. That could have happened. Um, Yeah, go ahead, David. No, totally. I mean, like, and it's extremely rich for him to go on, uh, this boy to go on about this kind of stuff, because when it came time to doing COVID spending in this country, he was railing against that because of the extraordinary pressures on it, right? So, like, this guy, like, you know, he's he's nitpicking his arguments to try to make it seem like he's looking out for, for the little guy. Again, you know, crickets when it comes to the fact that the Federal Reserve was propping up uh, corporate profits by, by stabilizing the debt market and, you know, um, picking up millions upon millions of dollars of corporate debt right just taking care of that system no real no real problem there um but when it comes to alleviating the suffering and the difficulty that an entire generation of americans um is is really struggling with um you know that's bad policy right and again like i i totally agree that it's it's ridiculous to talk about a country like the united states as if we have scarce resources to help people out I think I totally agree um, that there's a section of, of Americans that benefits um, from um, from college uh, college debt cancellation, right? Well, what's the solution to that? A very robust social spending measure um, to lift up all people, and that's something that Larry Summers would be very much against too. Um, you know, so he there there is no plan um, here that he is, is would be pro. Um, he's just trying to find ways to try to divide folks, um, which is also something that the Biden administration is playing into when they're trying to do means testing stuff like that. Right. Uh, when you don't make these things universal public goods like university education should be free across the country, um, then you create yep. a system where you you have resentment um, and people who are really wanting to see those kind of programs. end. and Summers, as somebody who spent time in the Clinton administration, knows just how to ride that resentment. You know, this is like yes. one of the big political tricks that people like Summers and, and his ilk do, um, where they recognize that there is a lot of like 
you know, to use a term that is super annoying to me, economic anxiety in this country, right? Um, they recognize that that exists, but instead of uh, what, what they try to do is run interference so that people don't sort of present that frustration at the ruling class, at the people who actually profit from the misery, but rather have people who are on the kind of bottom to middle rungs of this society. Let's see if those two groups can battle it out and leave us scot free. Right. That's the game here. That's like that's the he's going to you know talk about inflation and macroeconomic policy. And if, I'm telling you all it's all bunk. Um, what he's really trying to do is he's trying to divide um, different sections of of income, you know, people of different um, incomes on the lower spectrum. I mean, like, I think a lot of people also don't recognize um, just how rich the rich are sometimes, you know, yes. like even relative to like, look, to me, I'll be completely honest, $125,000 a year um, seems absolutely astronomical to me. Um, yep. I, I don't really spend time with people who make that kind of money. Um, it doesn't seem like something that I'll be getting anytime in the near future in my life. Um, you know, so I get where like that kind of like frustration or, or, or even the feeling of like, oh, well, it doesn't matter. Those people on the kind of bubble. But when you compare $125,000 a year to what the people at the very top in the society, not even like, you know, 1%, but the top 5%, it's astronomical. Um, so again, like what if we could get people, you know, who are making $125,000 and people who make $60,000 a year to get really pissed off at one another and think that, oh, they're getting something up on me or people um, who come from the working class who um, went to college um, and versus people who are from the working class who didn't go to college. Um, you know, if you could find ways to sort of press on those kind of fissures, that's how you sort of derail um, and, and destroy this kind of movements. And just like last thing, right quick, this kind of attack was coming no matter what level of debt forgiveness Biden did. And that's why it's so cowardly and stupid yes. and counterproductive to do what they're doing here. Because the critics, the people who are going to be mad about this are going to be mad no matter what, because they want to see people in, in, in debt peonage for their entire life. Like that's good for them. The reason yes. Larry Summers wants y'all to be upping your, your student loan payments right now is because he knows that will mean that you will have less money in your pocket at the end of the month, which means when you go to work, you're going to be a little bit more worried about losing your job. Um, you're going to be a little bit less likely to take a risk like pushing for a, a raise or fighting to join a union because – um, you know, your expenses have gone up significantly and they don't like this idea. Like people in America, working class people in America, middle class people in America aren't doing very well right now. Um, and what they want to do is they want to make it worse for y'all because even in this situation where it's not even good, right? People are starting to push back and have some opportunities to fight back against the incredible power that capitalists have over the rest of us. Um, yeah. And Summers wants to return that whip. Exactly. The whip is it's this is the whip uh, that sort of corporate America and industrial and financial America inherited uh, from like the slaveocracy, basically. Yeah. And uh, so a couple things. What could we I'm glad Larry Summers is so interested in making sure every public dollar goes to the most essential need. Like, well, we could do a few things. I would uh, first of all, Medicare for all should be happening day yeah. one. Obviously, Easy. Larry Summers is not for that. Um, but we absolutely like oh, COVID care. Uh, Larry Summers, thank you for giving a fuck about our healthcare system. Medicare for all would be that that and extend that to everybody. No one's going to give a fuck that some student loan debt was canceled. But guess what? Let's say you still think like students. So students, first of all, many of whom did not graduate, just have debt that they are saddled with without the mm -hmm. degree. Um, uh, nonetheless, let's add truckers. Truckers have go into a lot of debt. There's a, there's a lot of different sort of professional debt 
that people have to go into drivers let's start let's let's throw all this sort of stuff into the jubilee and let's let's really start thinking um and also there does need to be a reform too, right? Like we can't just, this is why this is ultimately a kick the can down the road situation mm-hmm. because nothing is being done to actually stop the, um, uh, like the problem of people be, needing to pay for college. Um, but I will just say when we're talking about how much of people like Larry Summers are kicking and screaming against the Bernie Sanders uh, style program that would be public higher education. Let's remember how, how little the fucking price tag was for this. This is from uh, this old Bernie article. Um, uh, from CNBC. Senator Bernie Sanders introduced a bill to make college free and have Wall Street pay for it. The Tax on Wall Street Speculation Act would levy a 0.5% tax on stock trades, a 0.1% fee on bond trades, and a 0.005% fee on derivative transactions. That would raise up to $2.4 trillion over the next decade, according to the summary of the bill. I mean, does that? that's not exactly fucking Stalin. Right. <laughs> we are, ladies and gentlemen, we are still tinkering at the fucking edges here and we could have it where all those people who didn't go to college for whatever reason. And look, people shouldn't have to be forced to go to college um, past 18. Look, you're adults. You should have that option and it should not be price prohibited at all. Um and this, anybody who's arguing against this, both this cancellation and Medicare for all wants that elitist system where only rich kids are able to go to college. And and let's, let's also just like make like the larger, like kind of populist argument here. When, when Bernie Sanders is talking about increasing uh, taxes on wall street to pay for these kind of social programs, I think it's really important for people uh, to realize that there are multiple roles that wall street plays. Yes. I think most people understand it's rich people. Great. But what does Wall Street represent? What does that trading represent? That's where all of the profits that go from your labor, right, or or the natural resources in this country and around the globe go in the form of profits, right? So like these mines, like, for example, our friends um, who are fighting against Warrior Met, those companies are traded on Wall Street, right? And they take the profits from that coal mine, um, and then it sort of gets washed through this larger financial system that we sort of refer to colloquially as as Wall Street, right? So this is actually taking back money that we all created, value that we all created, and using that to improve the lives of everyday people. And I totally agree with Matt um, that you know a, a small percentage tax increase on that is tinkering around the edges. We should be doing a hell of a lot more to that system to return a lot of the lost value that has been hoovered out of lots of parts of this country um, and returning it to the people. Yeah, and we're going to historicize the uh, student loan situation a little bit, but I, I do want to get into the PPP hypocrite section. Yeah. Uh, so uh, Stephen Crowder, of course, had to dip his or in student loan forgiveness. Sounds really nice until uh, to, to illegal immigrants, people with no life experience, people who don't have families yet, and people who use preferred pronouns. I mean, that's that's uh, especially the last point. Like they're so fucking salty over having to like say pronoun um but jeff from regina points out that uh, louder with crowder llc uh took out a seventy thousand dollar ppp loan mm. and got that all forgiven by uh uh your majesty the united states government um so you're welcome Stephen, uh uh for that taxpayer money um for a loan that you could have just paid back where, where are the complaints there? Oh, again, that's going into the pockets of, of wealthy people who have LLCs. Um, you know, so that's not a problem. Um, but exactly. yeah, Matt was saying like 
making sure that people who didn't graduate college um, and have, you know, significant student loan debt um, who, you know, don't get to reap in the full benefits of having that degree. Oh, no, that's terrible. That's inflationary. Um, but it's wonderful um, that, you know, Stephen Crowder's YouTube show uh, was funded by the U.S. government uh, for a period of time. I mean, like the PPP loan is like one of the best. Gotcha. Because all of these guys, all of these people took it. Yeah. I'm just realizing uh, Charles Ghost says, Jeff, from what I might not be pronouncing Regine or Regina. <laughs> yeah, I know. You did say that very funny. I was just going to let that go. Um, um <laughs> Let's zoom into South Texas just really quick for the yeah, PPP yeah. thing because, again, like this is the fundamental point of the right. And I'm sorry. I don't give a shit. I mean, one, we all know what the Democratic Party is. Like Larry Summers is like very much a creature of the right. Um, it's always amazing how much uh, you know people on the right and the wealthy hate any kind of social program uh, that helps out everyday people um, but love programs that help them out. Um, so this is a race we've covered a bit on the show. We'll be doing more as we get closer um, to the election in South Texas. Congressional candidate Monica De La Cruz a disparaged COVID-19 aid despite taking thousands of dollars for her businesses. Monica De La Cruz runs on a campaign against, quote unquote, runaway spending and, quote, socialist policies, blasting Democratic measures to expand federal assistance amid the pandemic. Um you know, so she's been running this campaign basically against any kind of social spending and particularly noting the measly, um, paltry uh, amounts of money that everyday working people got with the, the COVID stimulus checks. Right. Um, but it looks like she she doesn't like uh, go- government largesse uh, when it comes to helping out everyday working people, but she loves it when it can uh, benefit her. Um, De La Cruz reported herself in disclosure forms as president of JSM uh, de, uh, de La Cruz Holdings, uh, which generated for her rental income in the $100,000 to $1 million bracket in 2020. The firm received a $1,000 economic injury disaster grant in May 2020, as well as a $39,000 loan. De La Cruz also co-owned uh, Navi Business Group with her then-husband, reporting $36,000 in spousal income in 2020. The firm re- received $4,000 in an economic injury disaster grant in April 2020 hmm. and a $98,000 economic injury, injury disaster loan in May of that year. Um, we should have done this. We should have taken out a fucking PPP. Another, but she loved these. This isn't – look, I mean this piece goes on for a while – the, the, she has multiple random ass companies where she was taking these loans out. Another De, De La Cruz business, um, DLC Insurance, was approved for a $38,000 paycheck protection program loan back in April 29, 2020, intended to support five jobs at the firm. But the firm was ultimately shuttered during the pandemic. Yeah. Um, De La Cruz, who listed her title as president of the company on disclosure forms, reported making $44,000 and 600 bucks in income from DLC Insurance that year. The PPP loan was for forgiven including interest right i mean look i always say there's only so much um space that you know showing right wingers uh hypocrisy on this kind of stuff does because they're all hypocrites and liars um but i do think it's important to keep those at the top of your mind when you hear in these folks going on um, about how we can't be given programs to help out millions of people um they're very happy to take um they're very happy to take targeted government programs uh, that benefit exclusively the rich. And this country is damn good at this. Like when we had Mark Blythe on the show, 
um, for the Michael Memorial show on TMBS. You know, he, he used a metaphor that I thought was, was really great, talking about the way that the government handled the COVID uh, pandemic when it came to the millions, trillions of dollars that were basically funneled into the pockets of the wealthy and the rich in this country. And I think people have talked about it, but it's one of those things like as the news cycle moves on, people forget how outrageously egregious it is the transfer of wealth to those at the top of the society was during the COVID-19 pandemic and how little we got as everyday people. And yet Larry Summers, all these characters are getting very mad because people got a $1,200 check, right? Yeah. Um, but, but Mark Blythe made a, a point that I thought was really good. He said, the thing is in America, particularly when it comes to federal reserve policy, the taps only go one way. Like the infrastructure is only designed to put public money into the pockets of banks and wealthy investors, not to everyday people. They di- they have not built up the capacity to do that because they have no interest in doing it, um, which is why the Federal Reserve moved with impressive world historic speed uh, to shore up the profits of the super wealthy. I mean, people forget there was a huge stock sell off at the beginning of the COVID-19 pandemic. And then the, the, the pipes turned on. And trillions of dollars were flowed into financial interests and wealthy Americans that basically buoyed stock prices in this country for years. Even when production, when all of the other metrics of like economic, you know, like good economic growth were starting to um, decline, you saw stock prices explode. And that's because rich people had incredible amounts of disposable income to pump into assets, right? So again, student loan forgiveness, something that will affect um, benefit millions upon millions of of everyday people. Um, that's terrible. That's inflationary. Uh, but Federal Reserve and government policy that's pumping uh, trillions of dollars into the pockets of wealthy investors. No, that's good. That helps us all. It doesn't. It creates a a, a very clear two tiered system. But I know as Matt's going to make the argument too. Even a student loan forgiveness on its own is um, is uh, insufficient because that just is continuing to prop up the system of of um, of privation. Uh, that are, yeah. uh, is our higher education system. I mean, a fundamental problem is that we expect uh, it to be a vehicle for class mobility and, mm-hmm. and class advancement. And what we what needs to happen um, in tandem with making uh, higher education because um, uh, there's a, there's a myth of higher education that like sort of Democrats like um, like to make, which is that people just need to be educated out of their poverty, right? Well, mm-hmm. it's like. Nah, like that's not the problem here. The capitalism isn't going to be able to provide for all these educated people. We need to give folks through this, the government the things that uh, they are actually searching for when they want to advance in class, which is things like health care and affordable housing and just shit like that, right? Like that's why people choose a profession to like major in. It's like, Oh, that's going to get me a job with good benefits. Everyone fucking knows this. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, so like ultimately like this, this is the, and, and, and it's, it's done a, I hope, but I worry like a massive damage to humanity's conception of education that it is just now a vehicle for class stratification. Oh. And it has been that way for, hundreds of years the governor of uh, virginia the colonial governor of virginia back in the fucking 1600s uh william berkeley did not want a university a college in the colonies uh he resisted it for decades uh and what he because he wanted the people that were educated to that you had to you had to be rich enough to send your kid to fucking oxford right so if you weren't that your kid was going to stay and fucking work in the colonies. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, um, so I, I want to 
circle back to what something Crowder said, which is like, this sounds like something that's illegal immigrants would like or whatever the fuck. Well, I do think Joe Biden should probably stop listening to uh, Larry Summers and start listening to uh, the folks um, uh, polled by Color of Change, uh, specifically on uh, um, black vote, black voters on student loans. So poll results reveal more than half of all black voters, 56%, have held or are currently holding student loan debt, and 84% support a full or partial elimination of student loan debt, with two-thirds indicating they strongly support eliminating student loan debt. Black women, one of the most active voting blocs in the nation, uh, show the highest support for eliminating student loan debt. Nine in 10 support partial debt elimination and half support full elimination. Further, uh, 40% of black voters indicate they want the Biden-Harris administration to ensure that any student admitted into a public college can graduate without taking on student loans. And another 40% say they would never vote for a candidate who opposes student do- loan uh, debt elimination. And that's why you can really say we're kicking the can, right? There's there's mm-hmm. no talk of how we're going to do this thing about um, kids attending uh, school without having to take out loans. Cause we're not prepared to even fucking think about that um, with where our party leaders are at, obviously Republicans, but also the Democrats. No, because um, the, yeah, the democratic party, the Biden democratic party is much more concerned with what Larry Summers thinks. Um, and what's going to make Larry Summers mad than they are even with their own voters. I um, mean, it just yeah. shows you everything um, that is so horrifically inept about that carcass of a political party. Um, that they are, frankly, immune in a lot of ways, uh, or at least they try their best to be as immune as possible um, to popular will of the people who they purportedly support, I mean, represent. Yep. Um, another uh, uh, part of this, which I think is also interesting, what would they do with that uh, student loan uh, forgiveness? 73% say they would save for retirement, 53% which, by the way, another thing the fucking government should be taking care of. People shouldn't have to be worrying okay. about retirements like this. 53% would buy a home instead of renting. Uh, 49% would live in a different neighborhood. 48% would be more likely to leave a job where they're facing discrimination. This is where we're getting into the labor uh, compulsion element of why debt. This is why we financialize everything instead of grants, as Larry Summers actually said, because it makes you go work for a capitalist for it. Thirty uh, percent would uh, seek to start their own small businesses. I read this book, uh, a feminist reading of debt, uh, Lucy Cavallero and Veronica Gaggio. I'm not sure I'm pronouncing that, but. Uh, this is a little bit long, but I, I I really like the way they put this here. Drawing on concrete narratives of uh, – let me start here. That is what ties us to a future of violent relations from which we want to flee. Uh, oh, so let me – let me start here. That is what does not allow us to say no when we want to say no. Debt is what ties us to a future of violations from which we want to flee. Debt forces us to maintain broken relationships, which we continue to be locked into because of medium or long-term financial obligations. Now, all of this stuff needs to be taken seriously, both at an interpersonal level and at basically a nation state level. Like when we're talking about like the types of bad relationships people have to stay in because, Oh shit, Biden's going to make me start paying student loan debt again. Um, uh, like, or why are we like, uh, uh, or, you know, net in sovereign debt issues, but, um, uh, debt is what impedes economic autonomy, even in feminized economies with which women play leading roles. Um, uh, debt compulsively makes one have to accept more flexible labor conditions. And in that sense is an efficient apparatus of exploitation. This is why, this is why guys like, uh, Summers and even Joe Biden, like, Debt is a compulsion mechanism to get you to serve capitalists, and, right? 
and, and one that's like very, very passionately defended. Like we're going to talk a little bit later about global debt and how that's utilized to undermine democracies um, across the world. But just think about this, right? If you wanted to see how important debt and the ability to pursue people for debt that they owe you is, look at the difference um, between how slow and convoluted and difficult it is to pursue any kind of serious claim against abuses to working people um, by their bosses. Look what happens when you when your boss is breaking labor law, how weak you are, even if the laws are in the books, right? How difficult it is to get the state to care or to do something. And then look at how incredibly efficient the system is in this country for taking money away from people, right? If you're somebody who, uh, you know, you get a, a weird ass... Um, bill in the mail for a medical procedure that was done years ago that you paid for. And then for some reason, um, you know, that, that company decides to pursue you and maybe they sold that debt to like five or six other different firms. Look at how incredibly responsive the state can be. Um, and, and just the general system in this country can be into trying to force you and discipline you into paying that debt, you know, through doing things, um, like, you know, lowering your credit score, coming at you, um, you know, through, through the legal system. This system works very, very well uh, for people who own debt and want to collect on that. And it works very, very poorly for people who sell their labor to somebody else um, and, and are, you know, trying to make sure that the laws that are already written are followed. Yeah. So why did this student, where did the student debt situation come from? Uh, well, it goes back to a little thing called Sputnik, where uh, we'll just put a little bit of newsreel. This man stands on the threshold of outer space. It's the biggest story of the year, possibly the number one story of the century. This launching of the Russian satellite, which brings into the realm of possibility all those wild science fiction stories of interplanetary travel. Watch it. It's fascinating. This animation is a graphic portrayal of how a satellite operates. This story of the Russian satellite burst upon a startled world early in October. Russia announcing she had shot a man-made moon 560 miles into space where it was circling the Earth at the dizzy speed of 18,000 miles per hour. It sent its familiar beep-beep back to Earth, was tracked by radio and by sight as it hurtled across the heavens. The satellite was launched as part of IGY, the International Geophysical Year, a gigantic study of the Earth and its surroundings by 64 nations from both sides of the Iron Curtain in common effort to benefit mankind. I think that last part's very interesting to note that it wasn't just like the commies with their, their devious technology that was across uh, Iron Curtain, as he says, uh, uh, partnership. But nonetheless, what was our reaction here? Oh, fuck. We need to catch up to those motherfuckers. So uh, Eisenhower um, was president, um, you know, said we need to get on this. Uh, this is embarrassing to me. I'm a war president, uh, you know, war hero president. Uh, LBJ, Lyndon Baines Johnson, uh, newly into the Senate, uh, says, okay, we're going to do this uh, higher education stuff. Um, I read, I got this from a book, uh, here, the debt trap, uh, how student loans became a national catastrophe. Um, it also has this section here, which uh, goes into where the, the bargain that this came from. The Eisenhower administration believed loans would burden students who went into low-paying fields. But it also, which it, of course, we all know, 
does massively. Uh, student, that's why corporations and the big fi- like banks like it because this makes you have to like go work for a oil company or something like that because you need to pay mm-hmm. off your loans. But it also didn't like the idea of a wide scale scholarship program, which would undermine the president's limited government philosophy. In January, Eisenhower proposed a mere 10,000 college scholarships a year over four years for students studying the sciences. The man who would decide this debate was Carl Elliott, the Alabama Democrat who had unsuccessfully pressed Truman for a college scholarship program. Elliott headed the House Subcommittee on Special Education, which crafted higher education policy. The son of tenant farmers, he had worked as a houseboy and groundskeeper to pay for a degree at the University of Alabama. Roll Tide. His uh, papers are at Alabama uh, currently. He ran for Congress in 1948, telling coal miners there was no reason their children shouldn't have the same Mm -hmm. opportunity to go to college as wealthy elites in the city. And let me read that again, because that is all that this is about. Uh, Ran for Congress in 1948, telling coal miners that there was no reason their children shouldn't have the same opportunity to go to college as wealthy elites in the city. That's fundamentally what this is about. Elliot had fought for years for a universal scholarship program to no avail. He saw only one way to bring together liberals and conservatives, student loans. In the summer of 1957, he held hearings at which a University of Minnesota official tested uh, that his school had extended loans to students for decades. Few borrowers defaulted. Elliot pointed out that college uh, graduates on average earn $10,000 more than 30 years than non-graduate. Uh, and, and again, we'll go. he goes into how this accounting is, you know, well, we'll get, so a modest loan would be a high reward for investment. He proposed a massive new student loan program in a deaf political strategy. Democrats gave their bill the patriotic name, the National Defense Education Act, and attached a requirement that each borrower sign an oath of loyalty to the U.S. government, appeasing McCarthyites, conservatives approved. That's how we got our student loan um, mm-hmm. situation from that sort of devil spawn by a well-meaning guy who nonetheless, like, you know, it did – send more people to college. But there's a problem with certain incentives. So uh, one thing is, so let's say you, there's two, there's two sort of theories, which is that the university system is all communist now. And that one we have, which is that it's like sort of neoliberalized. And I would just say this, let's say you have $50,000 to give in scholarships. Do you give that to one needy student for a full ride? Or do you give that to 10, uh, let's say a uh, high, uh, w- uh, high grade, well testing, uh, a lot of things on their extracurriculars, all these code for wealthy uh, and white, but mainly this is code for uh, class, right? Um, no, you give it, you give, you split out the $10,000 to five different kids who are going to then pay that extra $40,000. And that's the system that we've, we've ended up with. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, you know, we have this system now. Um, that's that. And later, we, it realized that uh, this sort of theory about what's happening in Minnesota doesn't really apply when you need this to be a program for the miners' kid because they aren't the, the financing. This the profit isn't there, um, and so we need this to just go. We need to go back and just make this grants. I mean, ultimately, that's what we need to do: public higher education. Uh, like Bernie Sanders said, with this, that fucking tax on speculation. And then like, and, and yeah, we can tax the endowments. We can do all this fun stuff too. Go ahead, David. No, I mean, I just also um, think that because of the way, like 
because of what most people think of a college education as being like it used to be a class status symbol, right? Which was what ruling class people used to sort of justify the fact that they hired their son and their cousin's kids uh, to work at their firm instead of somebody else who might be more qualified or deserving. Um, right. He knows Latin now. The like the because it was something that was expensive, because it was something that was only really accessible for most of our history to people of the upper classes. Um, you know, a lot of people sort of associate a college degree with, you know, the opening of, of job opportunities. And certainly, um, you know, it, it, it helps out a lot of folks. But as more and more of the young Americans have been going to school, which has happened dramatically in the past uh, few decades, that more and more young people have been going to, to schools, um, to universities. Um, you know, there, there's this kind of question about like practicality and I'm just going to nip that in the bud right now because, um, the, the point, um, that, 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 that politician from Alabama was making is that there's no reason, um, that the son of a coal miner shouldn't have the same opportunity to be able to go and study, um, and learn about the history of the world or learn about art or learn about the English language. Right. Yep. It, th- this is like, of, I think a very, very clear, um, socialist demand that like what we want is like material policies, but we also want our roses too, right? We want to live in a beautiful uh, world where people have the ability um, to fully pursue their talents and and their interests, something that is completely shut off uh, to most working people today and has certainly been shut off of most working class people throughout history. And this is a demand that we shouldn't be so quick um, to run away from saying like, yeah, you know, um, we hold up education as a value and, and, and as a symbol of a thriving good society that we want to be living in, apart from like the job training aspect to it. Um, yep. You know, I, 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 we want to have a, a system that provides meaningful, well-paid employment to people. Um, and certainly in this kind of hellscape, you know, it opens up doors to go to the university system. But I don't think it's worth I think it's bad. Uh, to sort of pervert that kind of larger goal of saying we want to provide this to people as just a genuine basic right and option for people to be able to go and learn about the world and to study and to improve themselves as a measure and as a symbol of our capacity mm-hmm. and what we um, you know are capable of doing in our society. And just to be clear, this was something that was very important, for example, in the Soviet Union. Right. Was that the idea of people being able to go and be educated was seen as a social good in and of itself in the sense that, like, look, before we had this draconian, horrific system of czarism and serfdom in this country. And now children can go and this next generation can go and they can learn um, the history of the world, something that was a privilege that was once um, held only by the, the very, very wealthy. And we should see this democratization of education as a good thing. And, um, you know, should be upholding that value on both the kind of practical material level of saying, like, look, this indebts like a whole group of people. Um, This is important for a lot of jobs. And also that larger, lofty, inspiring goal of saying this is something that should be a right and should be not um, and not be something that is just the privilege of the rich and powerful. Absolutely. Like you need to look at four years. College education is four years post high school where you are in a social learning environment, state-sponsored, where mm-hmm. you are not forced to serve a capitalist. Like that's what – because, I mean, I had to work through fucking I, – I, I worked for, through most semesters in college, not through uh, NYU. I was just riding off loans. <laughs> By the time I was, like, got out of those NYU loans, I'm just like, okay, I'm not also going to do that. Um, you should not have to work through college, right? Like this yeah. is another sorting mechanism. The kid, Like – 
it's easy for a rich kid to go through college because they're like, this is a fucking breeze. If you don't have to work, it's actually, it's actually not that tough. Insane. Uh, like, if it, right. Yeah. No, I mean, for me, it's like four or five days a week. I was working a, a job doing 40 hours on top of my, my, my schoolwork. It's actually like crazy for me to think about that. Um, yep. You know, and was constantly like, not only was that bad quality of life, um, I was oftentimes having to make decisions um, that affected my grades. Like, okay, I have like these three assignments that have to be done in the next 10 hours. I have to go to work. Um, which ones can I get done? Which ones are, am I just going to drop or ignore? Right. Having yeah. to cheat myself out of an education that I'm already on the, um, you know, <laughs> going to be forced to pay for in some form or another. Um because I also couldn't like just on that alone could not, you know, support myself and find a way to survive. Well, you know, I went to a school with a lot of rich kids, like so many other people, it was, uh, you know, completely different uh, categories of what that experience was like. And yeah, I, 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 I totally agree about. And, and also like, look, you have opportunities straight out of high school. You don't want to, uh, you know, go to college. Fine. Go get that opportunity. First of all, check yourself stepping in the way of everyone fucking else getting this. Um, yeah. But also, at any point in the future, you want to come back and get those four years in, you can come get them. Like, I also think we need to expand who goes to higher education facilities. Totally. Like, I think I think it should be open. To, like, people can take little sabbaticals, like um, like uh, like lifelong learners or whatever they're calling it now. Um, where you could take like you know, three months and go fucking be on campus at like a, mm-hmm. as like a 40 year old, you're in between jobs. Like, here you go. Like th- there should be a certain allotment for that sort of stuff. Um, and, uh, and yes, we should be, uh, taking money from speculators on wall street to pay for it. And there should not be anybody, anybody who has a problem with that, who isn't, you know, one of those people. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens um, tomorrow. But I think, as Matt put it, this is just kicking the can down the road because the demand is student loan for uh, forgiveness, absolute, and uh, making uni- the university system free um, for people. There is really no other way uh, around this. You can't maintain yeah. the system um, until it just falls into complete crisis. Um, you have you to know, choose, right? Like, years. exactly. Like, you have to choose between the model of the fucking. Um, it's only rich people are going to go or this is an egalitarian public good. And mm-hmm. you can't we, – we've seen what happens. And, you know, you can probably do a similar sort of conversation on housing, <laughs> I guess it, it occurs to me now. Like eventually you have to fucking choose. Uh, you can't finance your way out of this. Absolutely. Um, well, y'all, uh, we're about to be joined by our good friend uh, Lillian at Churchia to talk about the uh, war on abortion, um, the um, – some of the real lessons that I think are worthwhile learning from some of the differences between Europe and the United States on that question, where that fits in with our form of class struggle politics. Um, it's always great having her on. And she also is joining us for a little bit in the post game. So you get access to that patreon.com slash left reckoning. Um, we'll be back after Lillian with uh, a gem. Um, and uh, yeah, let's, uh, let's get Lillian. Yeah, you on. know, just a quick note on that. Like um, we talk a, a lot of people who like want to like attack higher education uh, say like you can learn everything online now. And it's actually true that like, I think it's never been better to learn uh, and podcasts like what's left of philosophy. Like the, 
that is like it's, it does simulate a class experience and even maybe like a better one. Like I think you should probably have both where you're coming into contact with people who haven't like ideologically sorted into Marxists, for instance. Uh, yeah. But like I, I love being able to like hear them discuss, you know, Locke or whoever. And I'm, but I'm sorry. Like I, I totally agree. Like the access to a lot of resources is is here, and that's absolutely tremendous. But nothing um, is going to come as close to having um, an instructor, a good one. Um, they don't all mm-hmm. do this. Who is actually willing to do that kind of guiding and critiquing work to help you grow as a thinker, to see where you're at, see what you're thinking about, and to maybe challenge you, to direct you in certain ways um, that you might not just find if you're just sort of traveling on your own. I think it's great to do, you know, self education. Um, particularly at PragerU. Um, <laughs> but uh, I, I do just think that that's a relationship that is so key and so beneficial about like actually going to like a proper, you know, school that I think that we shouldn't uh, ignore. Absolutely. All right, folks. Well, here is this uh, conversation with uh, Lillian. Welcome back, everybody. Uh, Matt Leck and David here, and we are joined by our good friend and comrade uh, Lillian Chichurchia, uh, who is a f- professor of philosophy and one of the co-hosts of the absolutely excellent podcast, What's Left of Philosophy. Thanks so much for joining us, Lillian. Thanks for having me, guys. Happy to be back. Well, I wish we had, um, I wish we had some, you know, more upbeat subject matter to talk to. Uh, but we will be having you stick around a little bit for the post game with us today. Um, but I wanted to talk to you a little bit about abortion, socialist feminism, etc. But before we really get into like, you know, mm-hmm. the nitty gritty of all this kind of stuff, um, I know you're abroad right now, but when you saw this decision um, from the Supreme Court, I was just sort of curious what your initial reaction was to it. Um, I think it was, I think my heart, you know, sank a little, but not that much because I, I was expecting it um, and have been for a, a long time. And I think if, uh, you know, people who are involved in reproductive rights organizations and, and whatever capacity, you know, this is the kind of thing that um, before it, like, things get to stay very much the same because this is like, you know, a, a fight over 45 years that we've been losing. And when you're losing, you know, you're losing. Um, my second reaction was just anger and, and not really like even at the at the right in a certain way, because I've, I've spent my whole life being angry at the right. I, I also felt anger at, at the left. I think that there's a, both liberals and I think the far left, like an inability to um, reckon with one's failures um, when you're, you're you've been losing for that long and the inability of the left, not for reasons that are always under our control or even under like left liberals control, but just the lack of political cohesion and wherewithal and strategy to shift this debate or the strategy um, at all. I think some accounting needs to, to go on about that. Um, and I'm not sure it is. And, and I, I hope it is, you know? Well, I mean, I, I want to get into 
some of the larger stuff, but you know, one of the reasons I thought about bringing you on to have this conversation is you made a, like a really interesting structural point about the U S initially mm-hmm. after it happened where you basically were making the argument about the difference in like the American system versus like a parliamentary system in Europe where, you know, in America you can go, you can shift dramatically in just a matter of a couple of days in the, on the status of, of abortion versus, you know, in, in Europe where that system sort of encourages people to, um, you know, to compromise a little bit more. I mean, one point that like is I, I was always trying to remind folks of is that, you know, when they were pushing this horrible law in Texas, um, the first like big restriction, um, which was worth opposing for a myriad of different reasons, it actually was very similar um, to what the status of abortion access is in countries like Spain and Italy. Um, I mean, I, I'd just be curious if you had anything else to, to add to that, because I thought that, that was a really astute point that I think a lot of times um, there's a little bit there, there's not enough like political analysis into how things actually come into being in this country, um, especially when you're trying to build a strategy that protects this right indefinitely. Yeah, so I think what you're pointing out is that um, like with a lot of things and sometimes with good reason and sometimes not, the American left and liberals, I'm just kind of grouping them all together issue, this particular issue, there's not a huge difference in strategy and what organizations are doing and, and so on, even though I think people are like ideologically across a wider spectrum. I just don't think that like politically the spectrum is that wide. So if you're like on the left and you're like, that's the Democrats and the liberals, not us, like ask yourself which organizations you are a part of. Is it Planned Parenthood? Well, even if you're more radical than Planned Parenthood, you're a part of the NGO strategy. You know what I mean? So like, it's just the mm-hmm. clinics in, a, in that world, it's it's not a wide spectrum of strategy and, and debate. And that's why I just, just to clarify why I'm kind of grouping people together. So I think that um, in this world, like with any many other issues, the American left is very myopic about its own conditions. And the conditions are very distinct. So in some sense, this is justified. In another sense, it shuts the political imagination like prematurely off to, um, you know, counterfactuals. Like what would have happened if we did this? And why did another country develop differently? Like they also have a crazy conservative religious right, or at least they did in the past. Why did it change? Why did this go down differently over there than it did over here? Why are we regressing when other countries in South America or in Ireland are, uh, or, you know, in Europe, Europe or South America are, are making social progress. Like, why is this happening? And the only thing people seem to be able to come up with is just like <laughs> unique facts about American culture. You know, like they're especially religious they're, it's and so on and so forth. And I just think like we're at a stage socially where this like can't be the only answer that you're giving, where it's like the idiosyncrasies of the culture are the reason this is happening. There have to be... Um, it's it, there that exists, but we've really dissected that as much as like humanly possible. So at some point, other things have to like be also analyzed, like actual political strategies of the past, present, and future. What institutions facilitated, you know, like cementing reproductive rights to what extent in what places, and we just don't do that. And like 
in the U.S., I think Alex Gurevich made a really good point on the Afibunga Bunga podcast recently. He did an episode on abortion and freedom, and he made the great point that the strategy that won abortion rights in the U.S. was very anti-democratic in a sense, relying on the Supreme Court. There was no, even though there was a democratic mandate in a sense for mm-hmm. abortion rights and for women's rights, that path was not pursued. This is what I mean. Like we should be asking why and in other countries, like other compromises were made, like in, in Germany, it's not legal, but it's not illegal either. And it's illegal for someone to prevent you from getting an abortion, but you can. But and and the reason all of this happened is a compromise with the Christian Democrats, the conservative party in the 70s. And you can you can argue against the limitations of that compromise, but you need to ask yourself why that was possible and why there's no insane right wing challenging like the status quo in Germany, because it's embedded within a healthcare system that works for everybody for the most part. So like this is like a winding way to say that, like, we can't just constantly talk about religion and culture. We have got to talk about institutions, policies, what compromises you know, what, what, what is it that we can do to secure people's rights? And I just don't think that the conversation is like almost ever about that. Yeah. I mean, like, you know, one of the big criticisms I think you can outline in the U S is that like, you know, if you remember, I mean, none of us were around during this time, but like, you know, if you look at the history of, of like the women's movement in this country, particularly around the right to an abortion, I mean, it was extremely ascendant at the time that like Roe v. Wade, um, you know, came into being. And it seemed like that was probably, you know, something that was going to come legislatively in the near future. But once it went through the court system, it sort of got suspended uh, permanently. And also like an entire generation, I think, of like American feminists um, were sort of taught to think about this issue from one, a legal framework and two, like a very conservative one where it's like, um, you know, it's not about just like, uh, you know, a conversation about personal like or just general autonomy. It was like the much more conservative of right to privacy. Um, and 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 I do think that like this is a moment where like um, there's a lot of space for there to be a reckoning. I mean, I don't know if you um, followed or saw what happened in Kansas recently, mm-hmm. Um but like I, I always remind folks, sorry if I'm rambling on, but like um, I always remind folks that like even here in Texas, which is like one of those places where everyone's like the religious right is so powerful. The culture is this or that or this or that, you know, abortion rights are like, you know, significant, like are significantly popular. Now, the question is like at what stage people think they should happen. But like the actual amount of Texans who think there should be absolutely no abortion under any circumstances is like an extreme, extreme minority Um in, in, in the society, which is like, you know, obviously we can get mad at the right wing, but like, you know, that means that there's like a public mandate or at least a desire. And we have to build a vehicle for them to be able to, you know, build power and demand the things that they want. Yeah. I mean, my thing is, is, is this, which if something is that popular, which abortion rights are like 70% of the American population supports abortion rights. This isn't like just a, a tiny majority. This isn't half the country that's for and half the country that's against, which is how it's posed in the media. This is just like most people support women's rights and reproductive mm-hmm. rights. Um, okay. So given that, what is it that has not been done to leverage the social power and conviction of that majority 
to secure these rights. And at some point, the answer has to come back to the Democratic Party is a problem. And the way the left relates to the Democratic Party is a problem. The NGOs are a problem. And these aren't things that you can just like dance around and be like, no, 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 we're going to do our own thing. But your relationship on the left to these institutions on this issue is a problem at some point. And you have to start asking, how do we make arguments and work with the, for and against these people to do something differently? And like, because clearly there is a majority that is just going on, you know, like it's going unorganized. It's not being voiced. And the strategy has been primarily legal um, and just this like battle in the courts for decades. And um, the popular opinion has basically only become more progressive on issues like this over time. And nonetheless, we are losing. So this is this is what I'm talking about, where it's like the that things are that whole like the, things are that backwards means that like self-criticism is warranted mm-hmm. and the feminist left does deserve criticism and liberals because the the basis on which this was one was narrow then the the kind of solidification of a certain kind of legal strategy that certain institutions like ngos that provide all of these services start to depend on which reinforces their relationship to the democratic party that is becoming more and more recent over time to defend these rights this is a very vicious cycle and it's a new cycle and it really prevents people from, you know, in order to stay open, maintain your funding, be able to provide the services. And when people get, you know, you have to do certain things. And when people get funneled into this work, they get funneled into that world, which is structurally designed to like shut down um, other possibilities because it is primarily defensive in nature so attempts to ideologically broad spectrum, like, um, you know, black feminists in the 90s, you know, start about reproductive justice in this context to talk about human rights as, as broader than uh, abortion rights, including the right to have a family if one wants one, a kind of anti-poverty program. I think this is basically really positive. Um, I also think that there are some problems because it is basically still couched in the same NGO institutional context that has all these other problems. So there's like Mm. a strategic issue that needs to be untangled um, out of this, this mess. And I, am not sure how much more clearly to say it. Um, And I, and I really like the articles I've written about this are are really like, I'd really like people to, to see that basically. Mm -hmm. Um, Cause I don't think anybody has, like the answer. I just want, there's a problem that needs to be like unfolded. Well, well, I want to, in a second, expand this a little bit to like socialist feminism in general. But before we get, I mean, like, you know, there's a lot of different avenues we could go down, but I think like most people who like listen to left-wing podcasts know, like we can talk about how like cowardly Joe Biden's been. We've been, can talk about how miserable the Democratic Party has been for decades, right? Um, but I think what might be interesting, since we have you here, is maybe to take it a little bit uh, closer to home, because I've also seen people on like the socialist left sort of struggle to really articulate um, abortion rights and, and and trying to fit it in with our larger program. Like I totally agree in the sense of like you know placing it in like a broader context of you know care and and healthcare etc but like 
one thing that I think was sort of myopic maybe um, was this really early days thing where um, when people were talking about abortion rights and I think it's just because the muscles on the left are so predisposition to doing this that the only way they could talk about it was in like the case of like the most marginalized in society and there's always these lines it's like well rich people will still be able to you know get abortion so it's not as much of a problem to them and like i'd be curious to hear you know your response to that tactic because i totally agree um one that this is like a class issue um but i also think that that sometimes misdirects the kind of popular nature of this and like yeah okay you're a rich person in houston and you need to like flee the state to do that. That's a huge pain in the ass. You know, it's like you, obviously you're better off than somebody who's stuck here and can't get out. Um, but it's still something that affects, you know, wealthy folks, too. Yeah, I mean, I think that the class angle really matters. Uh, I mean, it matters for actual left wing response to the institutional problems I was just discussing, because you're not going to get a solution to that institutional riddle of like NGOs, Democratic Party, and lack of like, you know, other social services for women and their dependents, if you don't, if you're like relying on like rich women as a part of your strategy, there's like limitations to the, you know, cross-class alliance, as it were. However, um, I really do think that that like, that uh, shifting of the moral territory, like this is bad because it affects the most marginalized people and not other people is my intuition is also that that's extremely um, it's the wrong thing to say. Like it's ridiculous that any person who is pregnant, whether they are rich or not has to fly across the country or to some other place across a desert or whatever because they need to go to a clinic like this is insane and it doesn't have anything like like yes this will obviously but you know i have you ever read willie parker's book it's uh it's um he's a a, a christian doctor abortion doctor who wrote an interesting uh book um about the moral case for abortion from a, a christian perspective um and he's very well known in the reproductive rights movement um for this argument and for his his role and um you know he just said he some of the anecdotes that he shared in that book um, where was that like in the abortion clinic? If there's only one in your state, there's a great big equalizing that's happening there that people from all walks of life um, come to his office and he deals with patients from everywhere of all types. Um, you know, you have it's, it's hard to even describe, but like the, the idea that this is something that isn't affecting all women and, you know, like absurd and and it just like defending someone's freedom um she that it means high ground which is is what happened over the past years the right has the moral high ground um and like i don't think we're particularly confident about this issue um i think people are tired of it like it's not that always that fun to like be the abortion lady. Um, you know, people think of it as kind of like a, you know, it's a niche and people think of it as a culture war issue, but you know, it's a lot more than that. It's about the freedom to live your life and the way that you want to, the right to have families, the right to not have families, um, what the state is and isn't responsible for. Like, is it responsible for like making sure you reproduce in the right way and with who, or is it responsible for making sure that you are able to like 
raise a healthy family if, if you if you want it and that you're not coerced to have an abortion if you don't, you know, if, if you do want that. So, like, we have this way of talking about it that is extremely narrow and it's it's um, and it becomes kind of an embarrassing. And then it's like very moralistic, like only the poor you know, are, are going to suffer and they, and they will, but this is, um, this, this is really broader than, than that. And it shouldn't be that hard to try to sell a wider vision of what it means for women to live decent lives. That should be compelling to mm-hmm. a large section of the population. But instead we just say those women are fine and everybody else is, you know, we're going to like means test our freedom, um, our complaints about freedom basically. Lillian, can you uh, just go into, you mentioned earlier the sort of deal in Germany but with the social uh, Christian Democrats. Can you just talk a little bit more about like the practicality of abortion in Germany just to, so we can contrast it with America here? And uh, and what is like the fight, where, uh, as far as like the reprodu- reproductive justice fight in Germany, like what it, what's, what is being fought for there? Well, okay, so the... The situation with abortion is that it was technically like decriminalized, although I don't love that like language. I think it makes it seem like you're talking about about marijuana, like we're just not going to throw you in jail. But um, the it's it's not legal in a positive sense, but it's also not illegal. And um, there are a lot women are who seek abortions are protected from. Um, like coercive measures to get involved. So like the state or counselors or doctors are not allowed to prevent you from deciding to have an abortion. But the the compromise is that you have to go through, is that kind of ambiguous legal status, and you have to go through a kind of intermediate counselor type of person who refor- refers you to an abortion. Um, but this is very different than what people are worried about in the U.S., which are people who try to uh, convince you to not have an abortion. It's it's much less uh, invasive than that, and they are obligated to get you uh, care. Um, abortion is only legal up to 12 weeks, which is actually a shorter term than in many blue states in the U.S. Um, and so thing, this is like not a paradise. I think... The contrast is that there, as far as I'm aware, there is no like challenge to the status quo coming from the the right. Um, And I'm not really sure how much organizing around this issue among feminists are going on. And in fact, I've talked to a few people who used to be really opposed to the council part of it, but then later kind of softened on on that for various reasons because it didn't turn, you know, People just have different opinions about how patronizing that is, how, mm-hmm. how, how, what, to what extent it can be positive. That, but it's not the same thing as be going to like some Christ, fake crisis pregnancy center or whatever. So, I think that's why they're less uh, hard on it, or some people are. Um, so yeah, I don't know how much like fight there is on this issue at, at this time. Um, there is a lot of fight currently in Spain. Um, I just read in Le Monde this morning that Spain, the Spanish right, is demonstrating against uh, abortion. Um, there's, you know, there's a lot of battle going on in Poland. Um, mm-hmm. But there are some places in there is kind of like a compromise status quo. France, Germany, um, 
The, the, the Netherlands is the most progressive place in Europe on this issue. So you can have an abortion up, I think, until like 24 weeks or something, like a late-term mm. abortion. Um, it has the most lenient, lenient regulations in Europe. Um, but interestingly, only has an eight percent abortion rate out of uh, um, for women, and in the U.S., it's much higher, like one out of three women. So the and the difference is really like that it's wide, it's accessible, and there's really comprehensive uh, sexual education, and and um, there is actually like a welfare state. So the interesting thing about it is that when you get when you make the law is more lenient and then you actually provide social support. There is no trade-off. I mean, this is what, this is this particular country's example. In the Netherlands, there is no trade-off between your freedom and like, you know, supporting families and, mm. and, and children and dependents and, and so on. And I think sometimes on the left, like there's this idea, I think there's kind of this interest in like pro-life feminism where like, Instead of abortion rights, we could like have social welfare. Um, I think this is an, a really wild trade-off to propose to people, you know, like this, because it's not necessary as like, I don't know, like no one's forcing you to make this trade-off. Um, mm-hmm. So, so um, and, and actually doing the opposite has more desired results for everybody, because what it means is that actually people are just making less coerced choices. So women are not going to have abortions if they don't want them because they've either had good sexual education or they um, like just aren't, you know, aren't making poor choices coerced by poverty or something. So if we give people all of the social rights that they need, then actually we all win. And so I, I, I don't quite get that um, way of thinking about things. <clears throat> So I know this is a big topic to tackle so we can do it incrementally. Um, but I was hoping like, you know, a lot of people who are on the U S left right now, and this is a good thing because we have more people on the U S left, but they came in in sort of like a patchwork way because, you know, you get interested in Bernie Sanders. You learned a lot about politics through that. Then you may start reading Jacobin or whatever. So a lot of people have sort of been building up their own kind of understanding of like social stunt and, and, and history here. And I was wondering, um, and and because like the specific context of like the Bernie um, run was like there was like a culture clash that was going on where like there was a criticism of this kind of dominant form of feminism in the United States. Um, and but I, I think and I think that people rightfully saw how like, you know, paper thin that kind of ideology was. But I also think it sort of left us with bad habits, too, because I think a lot of people haven't really spent time. Um, sort of like reworking their their worldview, um, particularly you know around like the the intersection of like you know class and and gender. And I was wondering um, maybe to start, and then we can get a little bit into like socialist feminism and like reproduction social reproduction theory, just a little bit. I know we don't have a lot of time, but like um, you know, could you maybe frame for people who consider themselves to be socialists, you know, why like, you know, abortion rights in particular are like, you know, key socialist values. And then we can maybe talk a little bit more broadly. Okay. Why are they socialist values? Well, I don't know if I really thought of it quite like that. Um, Mm -hmm. So I think that one, one of the reason, okay. So there, there's a couple different levels. There's moral arguments 
arguments, there's political arguments, and there's abortion is a messy layer in between. So my own moral view, okay, like this is just how I think about things. I think there should be many abortions as women who want them. Like I don't mm-hmm. think that there is a problem with women having abortions, and I reject the idea that there's something to apologize for. Like the safe, legal, and rare liberal discourse is not my mm-hmm. thing. However, I think that it is normal to have plural view, many different views about the kind of question. And I don't think you need me entirely on that point um, to see it as a political right worth defending. I think that this is a debate in which people's moral opinions um, uh, become a matter of political principle in a way that is um, not always like transparent. So it's quite possible to think I don't like people do things in a, in a liberal society where you know people have liberal rights freedom of expression and all these things that we say we like people do things that I don't agree with all the time and that they are able to I think abortion is not that different than than that and um, as, a, as a political uh, point I think defending these rights important so that women have agency over their futures. Um, the, the cost of making abortion illegal is both risk to have, of health and safety, but also that women do not actually are not actually able to look, look at their futures and think of themselves as being able to act in the world in a way that is as a peer or as an equal with their male counterparts. It, it means that women look at the world and they see all of these risks that they are responsible for that are not shared by their peers. And these risks are taken and sometimes they, you know, people make decisions and then they, the, the downsides to them are reinforced by institutions that are punishing and unforgiving about any choices or risks that have taken in their lives. So even if they don't think that getting an abortion or, you know, they don't want to and they want to have a family and there's no problem there, doing so at a young age or at the wrong place in time or at the wrong part of your life or, you know, before you get a promotion or, you know, before you're able to do some extensive job training or whatever, all of this, um, these are these are things that interrupt women's ability to participate in society, in the labor market, um, and therefore they affect the ability to be equals within their families and among um, and with their their partners mm-hmm. and whatever that takes. And so, if you want to support women's equality, you have to deter their reproductive lives because a lot follows from that, the kind of dependencies and will find themselves suffering under, whether it be from kind of being closed off into certain labor markets, dependent on partners, even though right now that's not really going well because people are employed and marriage lapsed nonetheless. The point is, is that this, this particular right is not just a personal right. It's a social right that connects to every other kind of right that we think women should be equal in having. And um, it, so that's what I mean by it's connected to a bigger picture. Um, and I 
see how you can support things like other kinds of social rights and think, well, this one, this one I have moral problems with. Well, I, I think it's a part of the package for the left. Mm -hmm. Well, I think it'd actually be a little unfair to open up the entirety of, of, of socialist feminism right now as, as a topic. So we might just have to get you on to do another um, bit on that in, in the near future. Um, I know you're going to join us for a little bit in the post game. I really appreciate that. If you wanted to, just for the public audience, maybe as a teaser, if there are any thinkers or writers that people who might be looking to learn a little bit more about these, uh, you know, about like socialist, you know, socialist feminism in general um, that you might want to direct people to. Yeah. Okay. So I think um, Loretta Ross and Ricky Solinger wrote a book called um, Introduction to Reproductive Justice. I think that's, that's a good one. That's like a good starter book to understand the debates like about the liberal strategy. And then um, Rosalind Pichesky in 1990 wrote a great book called Abortion and Women's Choice. It's called The State, Sexuality, and Reproductive Freedom. And I think it's the best, it's the best socialist book on the issue that I, I know about. There isn't much in that, in that world. But. Well, Lillian, it's always a pleasure uh, to have you on. Thank you so much. Yeah, thanks, guys. And uh, we thank Lillian for, oh, let me, uh, there you go. Um, you will notice a, a room change to uh, get closer to uh, the Wi-Fi source from Lillian there at the end. Yeah. People were confused about that. But uh, yeah, it was an interesting conversation. And uh, yeah, it was always fun to talk to her. No, she's wonderful. And I'm sure we'll do that um, more in depth episode on socialist feminism in the future as i said in the interview it felt a little cruel to like say hey let's tackle this big subject in five minutes um so definitely uh look forward to that you know we got uh we got one more thing to get to um but before we do i just want to remind folks that lillian will be with us in the post game as well um you get access that patreon.com slash left reckoning we'll be taking voicemails um and everyone's discord questions and uh, I don't know if you have a handy mat, um, but we should always remind folks that we have pretty stellar merch up um, on our website, leftreckoning.com. We have the on the road t-shirt, the big text. I can pull it up for folks. Um, we got all this good stuff over here. We got, and look at that beautiful model. Um, with the LR on the road shirt, the left reckoning trucker cap, and the big text tank, a lot of people have got theirs already. So, if you... and all three, I'll say like all three evenly. It, there's not a sort of clear. As I haven't looked at the numbers, but it seems like from my glance at the emails uh, as they come in, all three are fairly popular. Oh, for sure, for sure. Um, so if you want to get onto that, uh, you can go to leftreckoning.com/store. All of that really helps us. Uh, continue putting this out there um but yeah should we get to this uh, last segment i wanted to re-up the gem uh we might need to get that graphic back sometime <laughs> oh yeah i should um, like learn i should learn how to do like cheesy cgi stuff and i'll, I'll just well those are fun was that, was that jay andrew world who put that together for us i um, can't remember man the the tmbs days longest time ago back then um, but let's get to it, y'all, because I have a big one today, and it's going to cover uh, a few different topics. But I think this is really important to sort of weave these things uh, together for everybody. 
So the Russian invasion of Ukraine has had tremendous consequences, not only um, for the people of Ukraine who are suffering immensely. Um, it's also had pretty significant consequences um, for the world. People know about the conversations about what's happened in energy pricing. Um, but one of the other trickle-down effects um, that is very notable and worrying has been an explosion in the cost of fertilizer, um, which is a necessary factor in food sources for millions, I mean, frankly, billions of people. And in Africa especially, Russian fertilizer represents a huge portion of the market, notably in Cameroon, Ghana, Mauritania, and Cote d'Ivoire. And Africa already uses as a continent much less fertilizer than other continents um, because such a tremendous amount of food in Africa is local production. And as people know, you know, the problems with local production is that the yields are much lower and they're much more susceptible to, you know, sort of geographic and environmental factors. Um, so local production has not and is not meeting the food needs of Africans. So the farming that is done using fertilizer is critically important uh, to nourishing people on the continent. Now, prices have increased to like 50 on fertilizer, have increased like 50% in countries like Cote d'Ivoire and Cameroon, according to the Financial Times. And total African production of staples is predicted to fall by 12% this year, which means hunger and higher prices for people who are already living in dire circumstances. And these kind of shortages not only mean higher food prices, um, but also higher rates of food importation, which lacks that security and is also subjected to the ups and downs of the global economy and, and currency exchange. And that second bit is really important. Um, we've covered on the show, you could find the video, um, uh, the show, The Crisis in Sri Lanka, where a lack of foreign exchange, you know, for people who aren't familiar with what that means, it means foreign currency that's held by government and businesses in a country so that they can purchase goods on the global market. And typically that's done in the U.S. dollar. Um, in Sri Lanka, the crisis in their foreign exchange, having depleted foreign exchanges, led the government to make a series of disastrous calls like banning chemical fertilizer to free up foreign exchange. And this led to mass crop failures in Sri Lanka, and millions of people have been plunged into hunger, leading the people to rise up and force the ouster of former president uh, Rajapaksa. And this is a whole other conversation, but this also is a reminder to folks about how important it is to really work through our strategies with what we're demanding um, when it comes to policy. Because when you start messing around with food production, you are literally messing with people's lives. Now, y'all might have heard about the strength of the United States dollar, um, but it's not as well known, I don't think, what that really means for the developing world. As the Federal Reserve is waging wars on U.S. workers and wages, the rich across the globe have increased their demand for the United States dollar because it's seen as a safe and secure asset. And when all these people are demanding and buying up U.S. dollars, it pumps up the price of the United States dollar and other currencies. And this has significant consequences as most developing countries buy goods in United States dollar. So the real cost of imports is going up because to get the United States dollar means they're having to pay more in the first place. Um, and as those costs go up, more and more of these countries are having to take out debt. And what, what currency do you think people take out debt in? They take out debt in the United States dollar because investors and international institutions require debt to be denoted and paid in United States dollars instead of a local currency.
equally as important, a strong United States dollar means that global trade is usually depressed. For countries with smaller economies, there is less room to absorb that downturn. And the costs are felt most acutely by the poor and the working class people in those societies. It also increases the power of global creditors to demand governments pursue the policy initiatives most favored by the global rich, stunting democracy and replacing it with much more naked neocolonial rule. In Argentina, a country that has been struggling with the IMF for years, a part of their new deal with the IMF is directly targeted against working people. And a brief bit of history, former President Macri of Argentina, a right-wing anti-worker um, president, indebted the country to the IMF and cut social programs dramatically. A center-left populist coalition came into power. I've covered this much more extensively than I'm going to be able to in the show, but I have three videos to suggest for folks. One was one I did for Jackman called Getting Money Out Politics Isn't Enough to Save Democracy. Another one is for us here at Left Reckoning. Argentina taxes millionaires to pay for COVID relief. And uh, the last one is from the Michael Brooks show, Argentina's fight against vulture capitalists. Now, if you want a more in-depth understanding of what's been going on in that country, particularly the financial relationships, I highly suggest you check those out. But since coming into power, this new government has faced a coordinated assault from capital that has effectively kneecapped the government. And now this isn't the only factor. But these things are crucial for understanding why things happen on a material level instead of like on a personal moral level. Oh, that leader didn't have enough heart or care or something like that. There are material circumstances that allow for things to get much, much worse, even when you have a kind of center left progressive populist government. Now, the new Argentine economy minister, uh, Sergio Massa, is working to meet the demands of the IMF, most notably by cutting fuel subsidies that go to working people. That country is already facing an economic crisis and rampant inflation nearly 70% this year. The working class in that country is already squeezed, and the IMF is demanding um, that their energy costs skyrocket. Why? So that they can protect profit, so that they can protect um, the power and the interests of capital, so that they can come in and swoop up and benefit from the devastation of the country. Now, remember, former economic minister Guzman resigned over the summer because of the lack of popular support for these draconian IMF policies. That's the game that capitalism plays with democracy, enforcing deeply anti-human and dangerous policies on the masses for the benefit of the few. It also has to be noted, since we brought up Argentina, we're going to do more on this very soon. Um, but lawfare is rearing its head in Argentina as well. And for people who aren't familiar with that term, lawfare is a way to describe political warfare that's using the legal system to do it. Most notably, um, Lula da Silva was victim of that. This week, Argentina's public prosecutor is now seeking for the imprisonment um, of popular former president and current vice president, uh, Christina Kirchner. Um, and most importantly, most importantly, because it doesn't look like there's much um, that's going to be set um, in, in these allegations of corruption and grifting, um, most importantly, is seeking her disqualification from office because a lot of people have been thinking she's going to run for president again in this next election cycle. These kind of attempts to use the legal system to gum up and prevent certain candidates from running 
has become a mainstay in Latin America. Most notably, it was used against Lula da Silva, and similar kind of tactics were also used against Dilma Rousseff um, in Brazil as well, which a lot of people um, forget. Um, you know, Lula faced erroneous charges of corruption that led to his false imprisonment and the rise of the clown fascist Bolsonaro. From the undemocratic Federal Reserve in the United States to the tools of anti-democracy like the IMF, to a turn of the courts because the right truly fears democracy. The fight against capitalism and for democracy are deeply, deeply interwoven. I know I covered a, a lot of different topics there, but like it, it's important, I think, to sort of reckon with the fact that all of these things are, are deeply rooted in this kind of dual fight against like one, both like the capitalist class, the rest of the, class, the whole. Um, but also those forces, deep, deep disdain of democracy and people being able to decide, hey, do you think that it's a good idea that we're going to cut uh, fuel subsidies in a crisis like this? Right. Like these things are very, very much um, interwoven. And you have to have that kind of perspective if you're serious about doing something about it. Yeah, I mean, I think that's that, that Sri Lanka case is just, I think, a horrifyingly it's. Uh, it's just like a lesson that needs to be learned, um, right? Like, uh, and a line that shouldn't be crossed in certain things. And I mean, what we're seeing in Africa right now is a reminder to folks that we need pretty significant um, social investments still um, to meet the human needs of the global population. And, you know, we're nowhere near at capacity for winding uh, stuff like that down. We need to be expanding it quite dramatically, frankly. But we need to be doing that by wresting control from private interests who have no real care um, for working people or for the environment. Yeah, and uh, I don't know if Kowalski from Nebraska is in the audience, but maybe in the post game we can get an update because I know he's been monitoring that fertilizer situation. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's a pretty existential uh, world issue. Well, before we go um, to the post game, I did just want to note um, a bit of good news out of Brazil, um, where Bolsonaro's boys, um, some of the millionaire backers of his candidacy and his disastrous anti-worker, anti-people uh, presidency, um, were just raided um, by the government in Brazil um, because they have been talking quite seriously about pursuing a coup d'etat. And we'll maybe have to get Brian on to give us a little bit more of the details here. Um, but the Supreme Court Justice Alexandro uh, de Moraes um, ordered a search operation of eight different people in five states, including Sao Paulo and Rio de Janeiro. Um, and it's showing that the courts are very, very much taking seriously these threats that we're getting from Bolsonaro and his supporters about not respecting the democratic mandate that's very likely to come, electing Lula da Silva um, back to the, the presidency of Brazil. And I just want to read um, one of the intercepted messages here um, to just mm -hmm. show people how um, violent and nasty um, the the rich in that country are are thinking and also a good reminder going back to what we were talking about a second ago about how the global system the global financial system doesn't really care how you do it as long as their profits are protected um so this is from jose cory who's a real estate tycoon um in brazil who was one of the people who was raided quote i prefer a coup than the return of lula's workers party a million times and certainly no one will stop doing business with brazil they do business with various dictatorships around the world. 
Um, so Brazilian magnate, they're learning uh, the lessons uh, from the Joe Biden and the Obama presidency that we don't really care about what's happening on the ground there as long as y'all don't get in the way of private industry. Yeah. And, you know, I have, I have to look at the details and uh, get Brian's reaction because I think Bernie was talking about the Bernie's uh, Brazil bill about how, you know, we're going to take a stance on any government that comes uh, to power through non-democratic means. And I mean, you watch Edge of Democracy on Netflix, the documentary, and you will hear people just uh, casually say, uh, yes, it's time to stop this whole charade of you know elections and stuff, and just put the generals back in charge. It's like that is a like that is a more significant uh, part of uh, Brazil than like QAnon is here, right? Like that that is a real like sentiment there, and that is terrifying. But you know, I think we'd be stay positive. Um, I, I mean, if the department or whatever the Brazilian Department of Justice is cracking down on these folks, I don't know this judge. Um, Mm -hmm. but, uh, I mean, I think that is a, that's a good use of, uh, uh, of government state justice is going after people who are doing coups. Going after the rich. Yeah. Um, I will note just like to, to put, uh, you know, um, appeared on the point you're just making that like one of the most horrific and like, I think telling, uh, Lula lines about what rich people were saying about, uh, Brazil, um, during his presidency, uh, one of the complaints um, that was sort of relayed to Lula was that because of his policies like uh, Bosa Familia, you know, basically providing food um, and economic support, um, along with many other policies that lifted up millions of people out of poverty in Brazil, the rich were complaining, quote, that the airports in Brazil are starting to feel like bus stations, um, which is I think everybody knows exactly uh, what they're saying. They're complaining about the fact that there was more social accessibility uh, for certain groups who were sort of left out um, of the Mm -hmm. ability to be able to travel the country quickly and the globe um, as a negative aspect of uh, Lula's presidency. So like, that's what they're up against there. Um, And that's why it's encouraging to see um, that, you know, whatever uh, Bolsonaro sort of reign was the social forces that brought him into power, um, that the justice system there is taking that threat very seriously because I think you should um, take Bolsonaro um, very seriously when he says that he's not going to respect the, the results of that election. Yeah, this from Politico, uh, the new BBB, Bernie's Brazil bill. Bernie Sanders fears Brazil's democracy as it heads uh, into a raucous presidential election in October, and he wants the U.S. Senate to officially stand on the side of voters regardless of who they choose. Um Let's see. So, I mean, I think maybe that was, and we can get Brian on again to clarify, like, cause he was talking about different sorts of, uh, congressional actions, uh, that were happening behind the scenes. So, I mean, mm-hmm. oh, oh yeah. Has a quote. Only God will remove me from office. Bolsonaro said a year ago, I will never be imprisoned. Uh, yeah, you're going to lose an election, bro. Yeah. Um, you have to get the fuck out. Um, well, everybody, I think we're going to jump over to the post game uh, where we'll be joined by Lillian again, and uh, we'll be taking your voicemails. You can leave us a message at, um, put it up, uh, 1940-289-7234. Um, we'll also be taking Discord questions, so you get access to that and our bonus episodes, uh, which come out every Sunday at patreon.com slash love for reckoning. I uh, really appreciate everybody hanging out with us tonight, and we'll see you soon.